The following episode of The Drip was recorded in June. It's not June now, so... It was a long time ago, so... You know, listen with that in mind. Hey y'all, welcome back to The Drip. We are the podcast where academics of color sit around and discuss great books. Each episode features a free flow and conversation about one book that leads us to a broader conversation about race, culture, and politics. All the things that keep us gabbing when we're hanging out in coffee shops or in each other's homes or when we are still each sort of in our own homes, Todd sort of away and in a home. Because, uh, well, we're <laughs> so, you know, we got to be online, y'all. And it's summer, so hope that all of you are out there safely getting some vitamin D. Um, I'm Anita Chikater, the host of the show, and I teach in the Department of Educational Studies at Carleton College. Todd? My name is Todd Lawrence. I teach African-American literature, folklore, and cultural studies in the English Department at the University of St. Thomas. Thank you. Crystal? And I am Crystal Moten, a public historian, museum curator, and author who focuses on Black people and their lives in the Midwest. Woohoo! All right. So today we are excited to be discussing Suzette Mayer's novel, The Sleeping Car Porter. It's her sixth novel, and it won the 2022 Scotia Bank Giller Award and has been shortlisted for a bunch of other awards. And I think that's like all pretty well deserved. And Mayer is currently a professor in the Department of English at the University of Calgary. And spoiler alert, before we dig in, just a reminder that when we discuss our books, we will talk about everything. As you may know, we do call ourselves the All Spoilers Collective. So consider this your (laughs) perpetual, universal, all-encompassing spoiler alert. Um, And the book isn't like a mystery or anything, but there is just like a lot of plot. And there's, you know, you're sort of like tense about what's going to happen because obviously it's about as the name sort of suggests about a sleeping car porter. And the book basically kind of takes place over kind of a journey, right, that are kind of going across Canada and so you're sort of like trying to figure out, are they going to make it? Are they going to, you know, what's going to happen to Baxter? Is he going to make it? Um, and I guess I wanted to start us off by like, actually, maybe like thinking about that setup, right? When the author in an interview that I watched talked about how she was really interested in kind of doing research and kind of portraying the day-to-day lives of Black uh, porters. Like just like in the U.S. and Canada, a majority of the sleeping car porters were Black. And that was one of the few opportunities that, you know, Black folks um, and Black men in Canada had. And, you know, and she, you know, similar to I'm guessing right in the U.S. and Crystal, you can correct me on this, right? Those sort of work that was really exhausting was work that, right, you basically literally had to like stay awake, right? Because like people are like sleeping overnight and you're sure like provide these services. Um, and they were, you know, subject to a lot of different sort of rules and regulations that like Baxter definitely gets into in the book, right? You could get sort of all these demerits and like really get fired easily, um, so I think like what really struck me when I was like starting to read this book is just how just like visceral it is, right? You're sort of reading and like Baxter starts talking about just like his experience on the train and that there's just like, you know, it's like human stuff, right? And like, you know, people are like doing things in their rooms and he's like trying to figure that out and he's like can't sleep and like he's like hallucinating and there's just like, I feel like the novel does a really good job of kind of describing just the like confinement and like the what's the word it's like you know just kind of like this little 
bubble that you're in yeah. and it's just like so mm-hmm. I really appreciated that so just curious about like what were your first impressions as you like started reading the book and sort of how were you yeah how were you experiencing the book as you started can I ask a question yeah have, have you all ever ridden on a train before yes that's what I that's so, where I was gonna start I go was ahead, go, I was gonna start with the familiarity of riding on a train and thinking about so I've ridden on of course, several, many different types of trains from, you know, the the public transportation in an urban environment, you know, mm-hmm. from, you know, from Chicago to, you know, New York to D.C. to even the Twin Cities. But mm-hmm. then from my experience on the Amtrak train from, you know, like a short ride, one and a half, two hours to three hours to a five hour ride to the overnight ride. Mm. And so my first thing in thinking about this book was thinking about the era in time where there was a such thing as a sleeping car and there are sleeping cars right now that you can purchase and ride on but there is a different type of expectation in terms of your riding on a sleeping car net a sleeping car now than when during this time where you have porters who <laughs> were um you know basically for lack of better terms the wait staff like if you think of air air um air hostesses today and the ways in which um airline hostesses you know provide your drinks and they make sure you're comfortable and they give you the blankets etc um and so thinking about this labor in terms of making people comfortable on these long journeys um it's always just thinking about the expectations that people had that a train would just be comfortable (laughs) <laughs> and, yeah, but no. but in order for the train to be comfortable, it depends on the labor of a human being that is treated like a machine. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you can't see him eat. You can't see him sleep. You can't see him go to the restroom because mm-hmm. they're just supposed to be on for 24 seven in order to ensure the, your comfort and white people's comfort, because this was the people who could afford to ride in the sleeping car portion of the train and so I was just thinking about riding on the train and my experience riding on the train like there was one time when I was in college and I was visiting one of my family members who lived in Buffalo New York and I went to college in St. Louis and so I took the train from St. Louis to Buffalo and so that was a night overnight train Um, and I slept the majority of the time but I just slept in my seat I couldn't afford a sleeping car because the sleeping cars cost as much as a uh, as a flight you know, it's like if I could afford a flight, I mean, like, if I could I'll afford a, that, yeah, I'll just do a, fl- a flight. And so I just took the regular, you know, passenger with your seat upright, you know, sleeping, sitting up instead of the, of the sleeping car experience. But when I was on that long journey from St. Louis to Buffalo, I didn't expect that anyone would serve me. <laughs> You know, so there was just Mm -hmm. a different type of mentality. So that was my first kind of thinking in terms of, okay, what is the what is the experience on a long journey in a train nowadays and what I've experienced compared to what we're reading here? And I just found it strikingly different. I think that I, I totally agree with that. And I was thinking a lot about other representations of train travel that we see, you know, Hollywood representations, you know, classic movies and stuff like that, and how it's shown to be this luxurious kind of thing that you would you would definitely want to go on that because yes. you would be treated, you know, in this sort of opulence or whatever. But we never we hardly ever see the labor that makes that possible. Right. And I think, you know, when on in this book, 
the passengers act that way, right? Like that as if he doesn't exist except for when he's supposed to be there. And so his labor is in some ways invisible and he's supposed to be, you know, not seen when he's not needed. And so, so many of the kinds of, you know, transgressions that the Mm. the passengers interpret or experience as transgressions are merely his presence at the wrong time or something like that, right? Um, So I think like, I, you know, I was thinking a lot when I was reading about this book, and this is by no means a, you know, a, a, a accurate comparison. But I was just thinking about the ways that this labor, as it's represented in this novel, reminded me of the things that I have read about slavery, especially slavery in the in the big mm. house. Mm. Um, you know, the way that slaves are supposed to be like a disembodied set of hands. You know, mm-hmm. the way that the slave master would would um would basically talk about their private business in front of slaves as if they wasn't weren't there the way that the kinds of mistakes or accidents that would happen to anybody normally and trying to do something over and over on a daily basis would be punished in severe fashion right and in his case i mean these demerits may not seem like they're that serious but they are to him mm-hmm. because the accumulation of them is the is in some ways, the destruction of his dream. Yeah. Because his dream is not to be a sleeping car porter, it's to be a dentist. <laughs> and yeah, so as those things accumulate, that's really detrimental to his achieving that. Yeah, yeah. and I think that's like very apt, right? And there was also, um, like there was this whole thing in the book, right, where like everybody keeps calling him George. And that was like a thing, right? Like people ca- call black porters George after like George Pullman. And this idea that like, you know, sort of in during times of enslavement, like people were called, like were named by their owners. And this was literally like calling every black porter the name of the owner of the like train company that had these trains so i think that you know and the Mm -hmm. demerits is like yes it wasn't like lashings but literally it's like he could lose his job he could lose his weight you know he Mm -hmm. could lose his ability to eat and like you know yes his Mm -hmm. like bigger dream of going to dental school but also just like being able to make a living and being able to like survive right Mm -hmm. so i think that that's like you know i think that's like an apt sort of comparison to kind of think about um, and I was also thinking, actually, back to Crystal's point, just like a couple of moments that I was thinking about in the um, book. So this is like 189. And this is like when like the train has stuck. So like they're kind of going out into like the, you know, and, and like at some point, um, like Mad Mary, who's like, the, I guess, like the conductor, he's mm-hmm. like, OK, let's all like sing God Save the King. Um, and there's a point and he says, Baxter taps his palms against his thighs. But he only whispers the words and tries not to see the sideways glances of Punch and Judy at his whispering. He sways, stumbles, writes himself. Fell asleep on the job, I see, says Judy. And she laughs. Right. And Judy's like this white passenger who sort of is like supposedly like an ally. She tells him that she's been, you know, she's like for the cause. And like there's kind of this moment when he's, you know, when he's like, she's going to be my like undoing basically with her quote unquote dangerous sympathies. But the other thing I was also thinking about was with the mom and the the mom and the daughter tuppers and this is on 182 and so like he goes because like they rang the bell and he says you rang miss porter asks carletta it's mr baxter interrupts her mother mr baxter has a name just like the rest of us george says carletta my head feels like there's a thunderstorm inside it do you have any uh, headache powder click 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 his name isn't george you know better, Carletta Tupper. You know better. So it's also just thinking about that, right? There's sort of this, like, both, like, he's, like, dehumanized because, like, people, like, they, right? Like, I think um, Crystal put it as, like, 
he only needs to be seen when they need something, right? He's like there to like serve them. And, but also like his, his own needs, right? His own human needs, like the need to eat or the need to like use the bathroom to like do all of these things or like he has to do that kind of like hidden away, right? And he's, he has to like be available at any point at any time to like be able to do that. And they trade off, I guess, their car sometimes, right? So they can get like a little bit of sleep. But even in his sleep, it's like hard to sleep, right? Cause it's sort of like, you know, you know, it's just, you've been sleep deprived for so long. So he sort of like has, and I thought like the interesting thing was like, she described these like moments of like micro sleep, right? And mm-hmm. just like, and I was just, I just thought that was like really, yeah, just really well done, but also just like, it's like, what? <laughs> when he says like sleep has a taste, when he was like, I just tasted a little sleep <laughs> yeah, or I just yeah. smelled a little sleep, you know, like I think that the sleep deprivation is rendered, I mean, so it, it actually is, scary like i just feel for him so badly Mm -hmm. and i don't know if you've ever i don't know how long you've ever stayed up without sleeping like you get crazy really quick like you get delirious yeah Mm -hmm. i think there was one night like i stayed up maybe two uh, two nights in a row or something and like i was about to like jump off of a bridge or something like that (laughs) like you just you can't do anything so part of it was how does he continue to do his job when he is sleep deprived to that extent i mean it's just it's just crazy and then, you know, the other thing like you were, you just said, Anita, I mean, he really doesn't have any time of his own. I mean, they're basically like trying to steal a little bit of time here and there. And if he does take a, I mean, there's the scenes of where he's trying to sleep, mm-hmm. just grab a little bit of sleep. But if the buzzer goes off, you got to get up and go. And then there's the scenes where they're trying to eat, like eat some mm-hmm. breakfast and they're kind of standing and they're shoving this food, which they had to pay for. Right. They don't just exactly. give food because they work on the train. They have to right. pay for Right. And so they're just eating all this really crappy cheap food that is left over and just trying to grab that as fast as they can and then Mm -hmm. get back to the work. And then also he has to pay for the towels that people steal. Exactly. I mean, the the working conditions here are ridiculous. I don't know how anybody could do this job, you know, without getting fired in a few months, which seems like kind of like that's that's the way it works for most people, right? right? Yeah. 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 No, I wanted to go back to, uh, Ty, your point about these working conditions kind of just sle- seeming like, a, you know, antebellum <laughs> conditions, but also just add to add to that by saying, you know, they may seem like antebellum, but they are also postbellum, right? Because like when you think about the fact that after slavery, most African-Americans went into either personal or domestic service and or sh- sharecropping or, or, or farm labor, and you think about the um, um, the conditions of those labor, right? Oh, conditions of that labor. And so you, in, in some senses, this is just like domestic or personal service, mo- mm-hmm. like on a mo- on a moving vehicle, right? Mm-hmm. And then you like think about, and, and particularly with your point around having to pay for the supplies that they're do- using to do the job. Like I just think of sharecropping. I mean, when you think about having to uh, purchase your seeds, purchase your equipment to kind of work the land from the actual landowner that keeps you in a mm-hmm. perpetual cycle of debt. And then you then you think about the uh, the corollary of black women working as personal uh, doing personal or domestic service in the homes of sometimes not even well-to-do white women but women who are just like a step up above you know um, Mm -hmm. a a black a black working woman and the the indignities they have to endure doing that work you know similarly in terms of you know being called somebody's auntie right like I'm not your auntie 
you know, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and having these expectations about who you are based on what you do. It's just very, very similar. And so I think but I think that that is what is surprising, because, well, I think it's surprising for the average reader who doesn't really understand black labor history, especially because this type of work is I mean, this is the quintessential black labor history story, right? The Pullman Porter, the the work that that lifts you from working class to middle class to prov- to providing that foundation for your this family. Is a good job. Yes, it's yeah, a great it's a job. job. It's a like, exactly. It's a relatively job. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's, it's a For respectable people, is... job. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And so, but I do. I did find it interesting. I mean, I'm all over the place because your 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 you all's comments are just sparking so many thoughts. But it's so interesting that he also was ashamed that he was still working as a porter because his mm-hmm. fam. He he was like, well, you know, I was just only supposed to be doing this for a summer, but I'm still doing this, and he was ashamed to be telling his family that he was you know still working as a as a porter um even though again like this is respectable work like this is work that is gonna stabilize your family's income right because it's so dependable so you can count on it and i think just an interesting thing though it's like it's not african-american history it's african-canadian history right and i do think that there's still american no no that well okay but i do feel like i think there's like this whole like idea that somehow canada was better than the u.s Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that's what I wanted to point out. Right. I okay. think it's this idea that like Canada mm-hmm. is like they were so much better. Like they didn't have the same histories. Like they didn't mm-hmm. have the same kind of like right like racism as like the U.S. does. And I feel like clearly not. <laughs> right. And like clearly. And yeah. And I think like it's interesting that he is an immigrant. Right. Like he comes yeah. from I guess yes. somewhere in the Caribbean. I can't. I don't know if they specify where. I can't remember. Um. So. So I just think that it's like interesting that I was like it's Canada, but like it's actually kind of the same as the but that, U.S. I mean, that, but that's the that's the also I I mean I still I I guess that point didn't didn't come across as strong to me because I think that's the that's a point that people who misunderstand Jim Crow also think like the North mm. is surprising mm-hmm. in its racism, mm-hmm. 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 and so I'm just like the North and Canada too, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah, you know. Although, like, is it Malcolm X credited with saying, you know, like you got to get up, you know, you got to get up to Canada, but like Canada, like you think about the the fact that um the Book of Negroes that that sends. The story of the Book of Negroes, which is during a Revolutionary War, there were um, enslaved Africans who fight on the side of the British. And because of Mm -hmm. their service, they get their names get inscribed into the Book of Negroes, which allows them free passage to Nova Scotia. They get to Nova Scotia and it's like a frozen tundra. It's like, how are you going to survive in Nova Scotia? It's like, that's the reward for putting your body on the line for fighting for the King of England is to be sent to a frozen tundra where you're going to freeze your ASS off. Okay. And so it's like, okay, this idea that Canada is this promised right. land, right? It's, it's just a similar thing. But I think you're right in terms of people's understanding of like North is synonymous with freedom and right. Canada is the furthest North you can get. So you better be free in Canada. Right. Maybe it's a, a difference in thinking about the the difference between um, legal and sort of statutory there you go. Uh, yeah. situation as, mm-hmm. as opposed compared to custom mm-hmm. and practice. Right. There so you go. Yeah. Getting to Canada is good because there are not laws that keep you still in slavery, right. or there right. are not not the jury segregation. Exactly. Yeah. But right. the practice and the custom is still the same, and yeah. especially in places there's a bunch of black people. 
uh, white people are going to mm-hmm. be afraid of that and are right. going to, you know, you're going to see your yeah. flash of white supremacy come yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like the politics of like race on the train seemed to me like very US, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like I feel like the Absolutely. kinds of like, mm-hmm. right? Like what was happening in terms of like, you know, especially kind of some of the white people yeah. who were like, quote unquote, but ap- apparently more sympathetic. Like I feel yeah. like they were probably the worst, right? In the ways right. in which they were like so condescending and so. Right. Um, like so, I was like, yeah, like this, this is this American as apple from, pie, like, right? Yeah, <laughs> what's yeah. Canadian, Canadian equivalent, <laughs> right? Canadian is poutine. There you, there you go. <laughs> Canadian is poutine. <laughs> well, I think that's one thing that I, that really struck me about this book too is the way another kind of a stretch ca- comparison, but it made me think of this is like I- I'm thinking about a, about Get Out. I'm thinking about the the ways Ooh. that we think about whiteness itself as being um, being horrifying and mm-hmm. threatening. And this book really gets at that. It doesn't matter whether a white person is trying to be nice to him. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter whether a white person is being, um, you know, directly um, antagonistic towards him. It doesn't matter whether yeah. they're old. It doesn't matter whether they're a little kid. Like to me, Esme is one of the scariest characters in the whole book oh. because she's like this. To me, she, I, I don't know. I don't know if you guys are reading her this way, but. To me, she was just like a little version of all the other white people on the train, mm. and like they, ne- they wanted everything from him. They wanted yeah. everything, all, everything, every all of his his minutes, everything his body could do, mm-hmm. everything. They wanted it all, and she was like that too. Except she was like a physical embodiment of it, like a was it called a, a remora that like attaches to a shark mm. and like just <laughs> you know like just on it and just like stuck in its you know, its blood or whatever. That's the a way parasite, basically. A barnacle. A barnacle. That's the way I saw that little girl. And like, I'll be like, yeah. every time her granny was like, "Come on," I was like, "Man, get that girl and get away from her." Yeah, uh, from him. But and the then, thing is, he's the one who initiates. That, that. is true. That's what I know. Right? Too. Yeah, because like, okay, so this this is ninety four. So basically, okay. he like goes into the whatever the mm-hmm. one of the things. Yeah. And he says that, um, so basically the spider, right, yeah. <laughs> has like gone into and like, okay, the spider no longer sits in her seat, but has migrated and rooted herself besides the child, Esme and Granny. Her hands empty and red without the embroidery. Judy leans into the small party too. I understand the little girl's mother recently passed away, says mm-hmm. the spider, tipping her head sympathetically. Granny nods. Well, the spider says in her tinkly voice. This might be forward of me, but I'm quite famous. Perhaps you've heard of me. My name is Mrs. Sarah Crane from Boston, and I've been recently conferencing with my fellow spirituals in Winnipeg. There was a feature written about my powers as a medium in a prestigious science journal. Through my spirit control, I'm able to sleep with the dead. Baxter leaps forward faster than the fastest train. Little girl, do you want to see the train's engine? Baxter asks. He grabs Esme's other hand and yanks her away, her granny's veiny hand naked, free, the flesh still bloodless from where Esme had been choking it. So he's the one who like yeah. grabs yeah, but, her first, right? Yeah, but, but I'm just saying, like, like, I think it's like interesting <laughs> from his perspective, like why he does that, and like he sort well, of is, is it, like as like saving her in some ways from right. And what? So and what is his reward for that? I mean, like when he tries to do something good for white people on the train or tries to help them, it seems like it just backfires. I mean, clearly on she's him. a clingy child because she did like go her for granny, <laughs> right? So. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean she's yeah. more than a clingy child. Like, there's those scenes where you think it's just him alone, and he's talking about something. And, then and there's like Esme. Yeah, she's just right there. <laughs> yeah, and, then the, and her horse. Yeah, yeah, and her horse, and like clamps onto like, his twice body. Twice that he somehow. does that, right? That he like rescues her. That, and then like when she's like in the room, basically when like Spider reveals her mom died by suicide, right? Right, so, right, right. Like, yeah. So I do think that he. I don't know. Like I was curious about his attachment 
to her because I think it was two way, not just like her being attached to him. Yeah. How would she, so you think that there's some benefit for him or? I don't know if it's a benefit, but he feels for her, right? And he, I don't, yeah. and I don't oh, know, yeah. like, you know, what is that about? But it's like, there's some attachment that she has, sorry, he has for her in the same way that like, whatever, for whatever reason, she decides to like cling to him. But I think she just decides to cling to him because she's like, she just lost her yeah. mother in like the most horrific yeah. way. And her granny's clearly out of her mind a little bit trying to, right. I guess, think about her yeah. daughter's suicide, right? Yeah. And may- yeah. well, you know, maybe it is that that he is also mourning the loss of someone he deeply cared Edwin. about, too. Edwin, well, right? Edward, and so yeah. maybe that's the connection. But I, too, was wondering, like, why did he um, feel like such the need to have to rescue her from from spiders kind of i mean he doesn't like the whole dead thing right because that's like yeah. comes after like on 95 yeah. and he says yeah. um they'll try to disturb the dead and he can't stand it when passengers try to fool with the dead aunt araminta said that the dead are always around us but that doesn't mean that you need to strike up a conversation with them there you go something like that'll make them uncomfortable so i just want to say i think there's a difference between like having a moment or impulse to do something for someone else you know to save this child from this particular situation or even maybe to help out Granny, you know, mm-hmm. who's having trouble, obviously, taking care of this kid. But it turns into, like, this thing where she's, like, a succubus or something. Like, she's just, like... <laughs> so I don't disagree that that's, like, a potentially, like, a metaphor for, like, whiteness. But I also think that it's, like, a complicated relationship. And the other complicated well, that relationship... whiteness with- and blackness is a complicated yes. relationship, right. right? And what about Dr. Hubble, the also, guy he ends up... <laughs> Very complicated. I mean, that yeah. it's not it's it's not about the you know latching on, right? But I mean, he does kind of latch on, literally. Yeah, yeah. But I think I think actually in that <laughs> I think in that sense in that situation, Baxter gets more out of that than right. he does with the little girl, right? Yeah. I mean, he actually has a you know it's a physical release, right? It is a, a momentary connection with another person. Mm-hmm. It's dangerous, but it is you know it's it's erotic. Right. It's, it's what he can't have in his life. It's an entanglement. Um, right. It's an entanglement. <laughs> but it's, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> right. Well, but it's pretty obvious from the very beginning of the book that he keeps asking everybody about Edward Drew. We don't quite know at the beginning. What happened? Edward Drew? You know about yeah. Edward Drew. And then we find out that they had this um, encounter and Edward Drew was arrested and, and Baxter got away. Right. Because he ran away. He ran away, right? Which he, you know, there's this element of like running away from who he is mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think also there's this desire to be able to like be himself and to right. um, to engage in that part of his life without having to be punished for it. Yeah. And these moments sort of show both how, I don't know, like I was thinking a lot about deprivation and hunger, that this is like part of his condition is that he's constantly being deprived hmm. of time, of food, mm-hmm. of personal space, of sexual gratification, of all these things, right? And he's desperately hungry for these things. Like, he's mm-hmm. so tired that yeah. he's mm-hmm. eating sleep in gulps, wow. you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, with the doctor, is sort of one of those moments where he, like, gulps a little bit of this of his, his sexual identity and pleasure and things like that. So that's a sort of both ways but you i also was like no yeah yeah, you're, yeah, gonna yeah. Get, you're gonna get in trouble you know like right. it, it's totally a risk right um, his, his position like his position on the train is constantly precarious 
Yeah, exactly. Costly. No, like mm-hmm. on 178, right? He says, um, Baxter's finger dark against this white man's lethal pink skin. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was such a like great way to like, uh-huh. to, you know, sort of point to the danger, right? And point to kind of like what might have happened to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also wanted to go back, not go back, but go to like when he describes his like sexual, first sexual encounter with uh, Edwin. And this is on 117. Um, and I thought it was just like really lovely, right? And he says... Um, not he says, but the author says, Baxter's heart nearly hammered out of his chest at, out, at the outrageous perilousness. He thought he might faint at the speed and strength of their tryst, at the wash of joy burning through his every blood vessel as he stroked Edwin Drew's naked chest, his sinewy arms, his skin heated and dark brown like his own, over every bit of skin as they rubbed and sucked each other, hands and mouth and cocks, different keys turning and twisting, fitting, opening, Edwin Drew's perfect, perfect teeth biting Baxter's tongue, uh, spotless tooth, enamel grazing his cock. The inexplicable, ah, can't say that word, uh, release he found that night inside that train car. Edwin Drew's tooth prints imprinted on his tongue forever. And I was like, oh, you mm. know, just like, right. And obviously all the tooth stuff because he's like obsessed with teeth. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, Which is a pretty sweet like addition. I love that part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so just like, yeah, like I just, I think your point about like how he's deprived of like everything right like all these basic human needs that we have and that's and basic human needs isn't just like i feel like you said this in another podcast Todd, right like sex and sexual intimacy and like right love is like also a basic human need right and Mm -hmm. then the fact that he's like unable to have that right because of like the time that he lives in and like who he is right so even when he does get it he does have this sort of fleeting taste of it there's always the threat that the police are going to come in or someone's going to come through the door or someone's going to see the thing, the postcard that fell out of his pocket or whatever it is. Like this part of him that is essential to who he is, if it gets revealed, it is the destruction of everything that he knows. Right. (laughs) And that's, I mean, I mean, I want to say like, oh, and we don't have to deal with that today, but that's not true. Right. And it depends on where you are, when when it is, you know, the situation, the context. I mean, you know, there are a lot of people that are still dealing with that today. Yeah. yeah, which was like a point that, Crystal, you made, right, when we read Giovanni's Room and we were talking mm-hmm. about, right, like whether that book felt universal in some ways, right, because of like, the, right. you know, there's like parts of the U.S., there's parts of the world where like that's mm-hmm. actually still mm-hmm. a threat, right, in terms of right. like not just your livelihood, but potentially your life. Exactly, um, exactly. Yeah. Even though, you know, in certain places like in the United States, we can celebrate Pride Month, which it is. June is Pride Month. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what does it mean to to be able to kind of celebrate pride month and still know that you know even in cele- in your celebration you could be violently that like you could meet with violence right and and I just <laughs> remember I just well not remember but recently watching the news and how there have been um you know pride month is now commercialized you know <laughs> and so recently there was some um some news out that um target had been setting up its pride kiosk right and that people were being uh, you know accosted and you know mistreated for you know shopping pride stuff in <laughs> target and i'm just like you know there seems to be there have been advancements right in the ways in which people can live out who they are but still you know there's this fear that no it's not acceptable um and we still see that to this day and i think also like for porter enough for baxter Mm -hmm. like i feel like it still also depends on like race and class and exactly right i mean kind of thinking about sort of the violence that like black strand black trans women face for example right which is like very different than maybe if you're Mm -hmm. like 
middle class and white and mm-hmm. like sort of gay in a very sort of heteronormative mm-hmm. in a homonormative mm-hmm. way, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's mm-hmm. also kind of thinking about like the dangers, especially for him, right? right? They're sort of like nothing would have happened probably to Dr. Hubble, maybe, although he does talk about how his friend went to jail. So I was kind of trying to figure right. out kind of what that was yeah. about, but it probably still would have been like different, right? In terms of like if they got mm-hmm. caught. Like who would have taken the punishment, or who would have been punished right. more, perhaps? Yeah, is it? Am I remembering wrong, or is it Doctor Hubble like mourning his lover or something? Like yeah, his who lover... was like in jail? I thought. Yeah, um, but I couldn't remember for what. Because he said and something so... to him like, "You know what I mean when I say that, right?" You know, right? Like, yeah. So he's so his his lover, previous lover, also was a victim of this. Mm-hmm. Which then makes me think, like, I wonder if his, like, lover was also black. Like, I wonder if it was, like, a mm. harder, harsher um, punishment. Because I don't know. I mean, like, in the, I don't know about Canadian history, and I barely know about American history on this topic, but my my memory is that, like, we're, you said this was 1939, is that right? Or 19, 1929. 1929? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, 1929. Yeah, In true. a lot of places, homosexuality is punishable by being right. put in prison. Okay, mm-hmm. so I think that does yeah. what ha- mm-hmm. that is what happens to his friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you I mean, can I'm even just, send yeah. stuff in the mail, like the right. thing that he had in his pocket. You couldn't right. send that in the mail. Yeah, and that, and that was because of the um, obscenity, the quote unquote obscenity laws, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and that, I mean that don't not only apply to sexuality, but also I'm just thinking about those, and also in terms of if you think about gender, right? You think about women's sexuality and contraception and how people who were advertising for just, you know, women's feminine products could, mm. you know, and sending it through the mail could get in trouble via the Comstock laws. But I think the other person I'm thinking of from the U.S. context is Bayer Rustin, right? Who gets his his sexuality is criminal, criminalized because of um, acts that he was engaged in with his um, partners, right? In, pub, in a public mm. place. And so, you know, just that similarity. And again, I also don't know much about Canadian laws either, um, but that it was against the law and people did, could go to jail or get fined or, or you know, otherwise be exposed. Black, white, the, or otherwise. Yeah. Black, too, white, right? or otherwise is what I was, yeah, it was what I'm getting yeah. at. Yeah. And I do think within the context of the train, Baxter is certainly at a disadvantage. Is, right. If you were to be discovered with the doctor, right? Because the doctor right. could easily just say, he touched me or something like that. Right. right? And of course, they will right. believe the white person right. before they will believe the porter. Mm-hmm. So there is that. But I yeah. think it's risky for the doctor. Um, as also. As also. Yeah. yeah. Maybe yeah, not equally part. risky, but it is right. risky. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's on 151. And he says, um, my colleague, he hiccups, my friend, David. Hmm. Well, we were supposed to be traveling together on this trip, but he was arrested. Oh, I guess I could use a glass. I'm very sorry to hear that. My good friend, he repeats, his glass clinking against the tray. Do you know what I mean? He wipes his nose on the edge of his blunt sheet. I'm sorry to hear about your friend, Baxter says. He curls his finger uh, fingers around his kneecaps, right? Um, so, yeah, so maybe his friend did get arrested for um, mm-hmm. for like a queer act or something like mm-hmm. that. I guess I wanted to go back to the postcard and maybe that's like a way of uh, I want us to think about sort of that storyline because I also wanted to talk a little bit about the sort of uh, Eugene and this book who kind of keeps bringing up the union, right? And mm-hmm. kind of thinking about sort of unionizing and thinking about, right, sort of solidarity. But basically, right, so like when Baxter um, finds a postcard of the two men in the bed and like then um, it gets discovered, all of the other porters basically are like in solidarity and they're like, oh, we found one too and we just threw it out and we didn't know, they, right? Like they lie and sort of are in solidarity with them so he doesn't get fired. 
Um, which I thought was like super interesting given that, right, like the whole reason why people tend to have unions, right, is to like have sol- not just like have solidarity because we want to have solidarity, but like it's kind of like a structural solidarity, perhaps is <laughs> kind of a way of thinking about it. Um, so I just thought that was um, kind of like hints at the idea that, right, that there was sort of unionizing. And I looked up the history in Canada and basically, so I guess uh, Black Canadian porters did have a first Black railway union in North America in 1917. And then they became members of the larger Brotherhood of the Sleeping Car Porters in 1939. So this book is kind of in between. So I was like, I guess maybe they had a union, but maybe not everybody. So there was a union, but not everybody necessarily was like part of the union. And I guess um, Eugene was trying to like get people to become union members is sort of how I read that. Mm-hmm. Just curious what you thought about that. Yeah, I it, when I at the when I was reading the book at the beginning, I was a little bit like, oh, I think that the unionization and organizing part is being given short shrift here because mm-hmm. it was the one character. I guess right. I wanted more of it, you know, and the, the messenger is mentioned and, you know, the, so there's some sort of elements of it that are mentioned, but I was like, needs to be more, needs to be more. And maybe the that ending is sort of a way, like you said, of her gesturing back towards it mm. um, to show, I mean, I, I, I want to read it as, you know, this is a sort of demonstration of the power that uh, sleeping car porters could have together to make their working conditions better. And that's eventually where they go. Um, as opposed to like, they don't really need the union. They just need to, you know, support each other or something like that, which mm. I don't think is the way that uh, that's not the way I'm reading it. Mm. You know, um, yeah. and I, I think especially because of the way that the book figures labor, it just seems to me that it couldn't be that sort of, I don't know, explicit about the, the sort of the, the horrors of labor and also be sort of anti-union at the same <laughs> right, time, which right. I don't, so I don't think it is. And I, we were sort of talking about this before. I mean, you were talking before we started to record about the like the grossness of like it's part partly being on the train, being mm-hmm. in close quarters with all these other human beings. But it's partially because if you're the sleeping car porter, it's your job to deal with everything that comes out of a person's body, Ugh. like the snot, the blood, Oof. the shit, the puke, everything. Right, and like. You, there's no way to escape it when you're in such close quarters on a train moving across the country, right? And right. I, I, it took me a while to figure out, like, I think, you know, in the commodes, that, like, the commodes are just open to the ground, I think. Like, so you I mean, just that's were, what like, they are on the trains, yeah. yeah. On the train, right? At least like, in and, India, I don't know about here. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, what, what, what? You know, and I don't know, like, that's this, there's this sort of um, illusion that what you're, you know, you're, you're, your weights mm. is just like going away, but it's not. It's just going somewhere else, right? Yeah, and right. that's that's what the that's the illusion that the um, passengers on the train live under is that whatever is coming out of their body and they give it to the porter or he cleans it up or whatever, it just goes right. away, right? right? And so the book is so, I think, so effective and sort of showing us how difficult this job is that I find it hard to believe that it would sort of try- undercut the, the the labor argument in that mm. way. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I guess the, because I read, I, you know, you read the book and then what's wonderful about this book is that the author also includes a list of works consulted, which, you know, for <laughs> the person who focuses on black labor, I'm like, Woo, what did you consult to kind of come up with this story? And of course, it's, it's you know, all of the familiar texts that kind of talk about not only black labor history, but kind of black porter history. And so for me, I couldn't read. And then also black 
uh, union Porter history, right? And so I couldn't, even though the union is not um, ex- as explicit, it's not here, I couldn't read this without also yes. just knowing that the union is present. Because when you think about Black Pullman Porters, I mean, it's kind of synonymous with Brotherhood mm-hmm. of Sleeping Car Porters, and that's just a part of their history. And so I couldn't read this and not automatically go there. And then also, as I thought about Um, and reflected on the relationships that Baxter describes with the other porters, you know, beginning with his kind of um, concern about Edwin, but but even before his concern about Edwin because of their the relationship that he was developing with him, but Edwin as an instructor, right, Mm -hmm. and the ways in which Edwin was teaching new generations of black men how to be porters. I just saw all of that as part of the the Black Pullman Porter labor union history story that I couldn't separate from that. Yeah. Uh, separate that from um I couldn't get the union out of my mind, even though they weren't obviously not in this story unionized. It's just so heavily influenced by that history, um, and by those stories. And so I I I mean I couldn't even read it. And then also it's nineteen twenty nine, right? And the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters is founded in nineteen twenty five, right? And mm-hmm. so you know, right. the connections and the, the are Canadians that, yeah. apparently didn't join until 39. Right. So, but I mean, yeah. if there there is just has to be awareness. Right. And so, you know, that there's just you can't it can't be 1929 and you're a porter. You and don't, don't have know that about, in there. Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. right. So. And I do think that like his reaction to like Eugene going off about it at breakfast is like related to like all the other fears he has mm-hmm. right about like right. sort of you know getting demerits and getting fired so yes. i think but i think it was also just like an allusion to like the kind of violent repression there was of, of unions and right. like of exactly. labor organizing exactly so that, that was actually how, kind of a nice like allusion to that mm-hmm. this is mm-hmm. how it works at uh starbucks today you know right like, right you're trying absolutely. To unionize, absolutely yeah and and the and the management finds you with the materials right. literature mm-hmm. whatever you get mm-hmm. fired right so yeah that fear, that's part of what they do right. with their anti-union fighting is to right. create this sense of fear yeah. mm-hmm. that you right. can't even talk about it. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Because mm-hmm. also like the conductors there, and I guess like he wouldn't have been included, right? He's kind of like the right. management is sort of how mm-hmm. I read right. him. Mad Mary, right? Okay. And so I think that was also like, he's like at the breakfast and so like trying to kind of, you know, figure that out. Uh, but I also thought that was like interesting to think about um for baxter right it's also like this is a job but like this is not a job he wants to have forever like he's also trying to be like get out of it and he wants to go to dental school and the other thing that just struck me was like all the descriptions you know it like he calms himself by like naming all of the teeth right like he like goes through the list of like all the teeth and he's like always when he's like looking at people like diagnosing them <laughs> right <laughs> like, this right. is what's wrong with them and the other mm-hmm. thing that was like really interesting was like you know there's like a countdown like how much more money he needs to be able to go to gentle school right he's like right. okay like you know somebody gives him like a dollar tip and he's like okay like now i need ninety six dollars and five cents and exactly like gives him 50 cents and he's like counting mm-hmm. that down um i wonder what y'all thought about the fact that basically right like the mom the mom tupper mrs tupper gives them like a was it like a hundred dollars that she gives 160 dollars 160 dollars yeah. which is like way more like you know definitely right. meets like what he needed um, I wasn't entirely sure how to read that gesture. <laughs> I was like, what was that about? I I don't remember. <laughs> I was trying to think, like, one of the things about this book is there's so many characters in this yeah. book. And it's hard so to keep like, track. that was, like, the person who, like, asked for his name, remember? And, like, basically, um, his like, the daughter is, like, keeps being an asshole and calling him George. But the mom is like, his name mm-hmm. is Mr. Baxter. Like, he's. Um, so he gets, so you, you think that that is. 
or or maybe the the question is is that a tip that's given genuinely out of some sort of like an attempt to help him or some kind of actual gesture of i don't know what the word is i'm looking for but this rather be than like, like well i was gonna say like other people give him give him tips for other things like for keeping this quiet like the woman who was sneaking into somebody else's birth like right and having an affair or whatever Here's some money to keep that quiet. Here's some money to get me something special. Here's some money, you know, right. for all these different reasons. Is it really that there's no reason that she gives her him that money other than just to help him? This might be way out there, but I feel like I thought, you know, there's like that point when she's like basically well, her daughter's dad is not the dad that she thought that she had. And I was like, did she have a kid with a black man? That was my oh, thought, right? There was like this mm. whole thing about... You should know better or something. There's like, you should know. So I was like, so maybe that was a revelation Mrs. was like my thought. <laughs> so so Miss Tupper is actually black? Miss Tupper biracial, is, a, is biracial? Oh. That was like my like, and I was kind of like, was oh. that what was happening there? Because it was like so this weird bit where there was this like, you know, because she finds oh. out like her dad's not her dad. And there yeah. was like some like, you know, when she was like saying Mr. Baxter, like he has a name. He's like, right. Don't like dehumanize him. And oh, she wow. says, you should know better. And I was like, oh, like, is this like, <laughs> I was like, I don't yeah. know. I might be way up there. I might be totally wrong. I but like, that was like my not... like sort of, yeah, theory. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm I am not going to disagree with you. I mean, yeah. I feel like that's a, certainly a possibility. Okay, and really, like be... light enough that she can still pass the daughter. So. Right, right. Oh, interesting. Well, okay, yeah, so. that could definitely be the case. I hadn't tracked that. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to go back and look at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's that's yes. Let, let me let me know if you go back or if, folks, if you're listening to this, if you think that this is like you know. Maybe a possibility. <laughs> I was just curious. About yeah, I like... guess not. Not all the spoilers have all the answers. Sometimes it's only some folks. <laughs> yeah. that Although have the Miss answers. Tupper is also the one who takes the takes the kind of postcard fall too by saying it's her postcard and this is yeah. Greek love and it's not anything. Oh, yeah. Um, you know. So may- maybe her. You know, her having had a relationship with a person of color. Mm, I mean, mm-hmm. maybe all this is tied to why she treats him the way that she treats him. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that was Could just be. my thought because I was kind of like, it was so weird. There was like all this stuff happening. Re- remember she gets a telegram and there's like some yeah. other thing that happens. And right. Then, you know, yeah. there's just like, also, yes, yeah, so there's like a lot of characters, which also kind of is like, allude, you know, alluding to like how many people he had to like take care of, right? Mm-hmm. There's right. just like person after person after and person. Track of like, them. Yeah. And, right. Mm-hmm. And then there's like that like actor who's like locked up in that. his room and he's like worried about like yeah. what's going to happen to him. And like, right. It was well, just, that like, was like, he thinks so that much. he has, he thinks he has a woman in the room with him and he's afraid that he's going to get in trouble. Right. Yeah. Right. But right. he's afraid he's going to get in trouble. Like it's another right. sort of indication of like the precarity of his, his labor on the train that, He's responsible for all everything everybody else does, right? In addition to his own actions, you know. And I think, yeah, I don't know. Well, I was, I just wanted to get this in here too, and I, we can go back to what you were saying, you were talking about Anita, because that was interesting as well. But it makes me think about the whole pace of the novel. You know, we were talking about when you just mentioned mm-hmm. like how many people there are, what all the stuff that he has to do, the precarity of his work. The pace is just like it's frenetic. Yeah, it's like every chapter, like the first opening, like the first chapter. It's like a one shot in a movie, you know, like where you just like follow the a character through all these people and everything. And then it really doesn't slow down after that. So that this like pace creates this tension and then you add the sleep deprivation to on top of that. So he's gotta be fast. He's gotta move through this tight these tight quarters, negotiate around people. 
all the <laughs> while not having slept in two or three days. Uh, and m- much of it with the little kid, you know, clamped to his neck. The barnacle. Right, right. <laughs> right. And not make a mistake. And right. Not make well, a mistake. And, right. And I feel like even when they're like stuck, right, I actually feel like that's actually when it gets even more like mm-hmm. uh, like frantic, right? Because it's like people right. are trying to get it out. And like I remember that like the whole thing where like somebody spills crackers, yes. right? Mm-hmm. And he's trying to like clean it up and like you right. can't even let people see you clean it up, right? And he's right. like trying to do that when they're not on there and he's trying to do it yeah, like, like his, you his know. one moment when he feels like relief is when they actually get off of the right. train. He's like, right. okay. Now I can do some work. Right. And right, then right. they come back on like one at right. a time. And he's like, damn right. it. You know? Exactly. <laughs> Although yep. I thought like in thinking yeah. about the pace, I, um, we don't, the, the train doesn't get stuck until like, I don't know, the last Three or something. Right. That's the true. last That's fourth true. of the book. And so, you know, you're in this frenetic pace, this like stress and anxiety of being in Baxter's shoes, literally, as he's trying to service all of these people on the train. But I mean, that's just that's just his his daily work mm-hmm. pace, right? Mm-hmm. And so for me, I was like, mm, this is interesting because I'm feeling the anxiety of Baxter's work, but it also is kind of monotonous in terms of the plot of the story it's like we're just it's just serving white people day in and day out Mm -hmm. i mean Mm -hmm. trip after trip you know and so i just found it interesting that we don't get to like kind of the major plot point until like the last portion of the book yeah i just found that interesting because at first mm -hmm. well i was gonna ask you i mean before we started to record there was a hint from you that maybe you didn't like there was something you didn't like about the book. Is this is this what we're talking about? Yeah, right now? I think I think I continue to be the plot police in okay. <laughs> on you know in our in our conversation because and I guess maybe this is this I'm the plot police on this book because you know black labor history is my thing and you know I've read a ton about Pullman Porters and I think about Pullman Porters as kind of you know a quintessential example of black men's labor at least during this this part of the century and so you know while I while I found it interesting and enlightening to kind of be at this level of detail in terms of the Porter's work in terms of the plot that wasn't enough for me to drive it and so oh, I was like man. Yeah, but I'm I th- right. But I do feel like the monotony kind of is her point, right? That that's yeah. like how it for him, right? It feels that way, right? He's like in and out of these strains, like he's like yeah. whatever. Like the white people could all literally be the same. Like interestingly, like he also just gives them nicknames, right? Rather than like right. always their names, which I thought was like an interesting like moment. Then, so I do think that yeah. that was like interesting. Yeah. That's but then then okay, then that takes me then to another kind of important question. Like who is this book written for? Hmm. Right, if if we're not you, the- <laughs> <laughs> not labor historians. <laughs> For most of us who know like nothing about, <laughs> but is this you know this may us all feel uncomfortable in terms of reading yeah. the this you know monotonous excruciating play by play of of Baxter's life? But I mean, but is this how Baxter would narrate his life? Right this joyless diary but, of of labor 
which is interesting because it ends on a moment of joy though right like all these things that he's afraid of actually doesn't happen he gets the money to go to dental school yeah he gets to have like sex with a man and have pleasure on the train and not get caught Mm -hmm. up for it and like Mm -hmm. the book ends on this note of like hope and joy yes i do think that it's like interesting that Right. And, and I feel like maybe we like and I don't know who the we is, but like maybe that like joy wouldn't have been felt so deeply. Right. If we didn't know. Right. The conditions under through? which he was like laboring and like all but of these are, things that he had to be afraid but of. Are we, so, so, I, so again, I guess I still question and Todd, I know you want to get in. It's like, is this really Baxter or is this somebody watching Baxter and describing Baxter? Mm. Like who who is this telling this story? Well, it's not um, a first. It's not a it's first, not a first yeah, narr- it's a, narrative. Right. <laughs> So there has to be some kind of entity telling the story. So yes, um, right. And, and who and, is know, that? I don't know. That's so a good question. Right. That's a really yes, good question. Yes, it matters. It matters. It matters. But I think. <laughs> but I think. Um, I want to. I just want to get something in because we're getting close. I think we have to stop. But I, I read this book, or I thought of this book as like sort of like the the last job. Like you know, those movies were like we got we got to pull one last job, one last crime caper, and and the the plot is are they going to get away with it mm. here? It's one last trip across the country uh, as a Pullman porter. And the plot is like the tension is, is he going to make it? Is he going to get the money? And is he going to do it without getting the demerits that'll get him fired? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and in me, some ways it was... exceeds the caper expectations, right? All he right. wanted to do was like get through and like get some some money and not yeah. get demerits. But actually like what happens is that he gets all the money and he can actually right. quit. Mm-hmm. And he can go yeah, live yeah, his dream. He can quit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so like that was really I liked that a lot. I liked mm-hmm. that a lot. Mm-hmm. I felt like it had that tension, but it also had the resolution of the tension. And when I got done with the book, I was like, I love this. I love this book. I'm gonna tell you guys, I loved it. I thought it was great. You were satisfied. This was satisfying. A satisfying. I was very read. satisfied. That okay. Is very, it was very satisfying to me. Okay, Crystal. Last word. What do you think? I think. I mean. <laughs> I think there were some good, some good intriguing moments. I like the writing at times, but other times, again, it's for me, it's really about the plot and whether I, I felt kind of engaged by the plot. And there were some moments where I was just like that damn Esme, like just, I don't, I just, it just, I just, I wasn't blind. I wasn't vibing all the way through with the plot, you know, fair. And I, and I, and so, and at one moment I was wishing that the train either would have gotten stuck earlier or like something interesting would have happened there interesting things happened but the central thing that kind of we're building to is this train getting stuck and the intensification of the difficulty of his working conditions including the sleep deprivation and the hallucinations and the tension between his desires actually being expressed publicly and what that might do for his job and that all just happened too late for me like I wanted more of that earlier um and we get some of it but the stakes don't seem quite as high till we get later in the book and i just wanted that a little bit sooner so all right we're gonna end there but you know we're gonna maybe keep talking and arguing about it after yes (laughs) let's do a quick round of what we've been reading watching listening you know whatever's bringing to joy um todd you want to start us off Yes, very quickly, I will say, I think in the last episode about a book, I uh, talked about what I thought was S.A. Cosby's newest novel, but S.A. Cosby actually has an even newer novel that's coming out tomorrow. Oh, wow. It's called All the Sinners Bleed, and I have pre-ordered it. 
So I cannot wait to read that one on top of the other which one, which I haven't read as well. So maybe next time you hear from me, I will have at least read one of those novels. Cool. Thanks, Todd. Crystal? Well, I am just going to uh, chat about a song, one song that I've listened to, that I've loved, that I think is probably going to be the summer anthem. And it's Ooh. Janelle Monae's Lipstick Lover, which is going to be, it's a single from her newest album that's coming out soon called The Age of Pleasure. So I'm just waiting for that new album from Janelle Monae because she's one of my yes. faves. Yes. Cannot wait. Um I guess I'm reading right now a novel called Bad Girls, which is the English translation because the original is in Spanish, by Camila Sosa Viada. And it's a novel about a group of trans sex workers in Cordoba, Argentina. Hmm. And partly I'm reading it because I'm going to be heading off to Cordoba this summer to oh, hang out with yes. my friend Pau, who actually, um, and Pao. also Todd's colleague, <laughs> who recommended the book. So yeah, it's yes. really good. And it's just like really interesting stuff that I don't know anything about. Um, So our next book is going to be called uh, is Changes by Ama Ata Aidu. And for those of you who may not know who she is, she is a, she was a Ghanaian feminist author who just recently passed away. And we just wanted to sort of honor that, uh, honor her work and sort of read that. So Changes by Ama Ata Aidu. And as always, you can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, all the places where you can find podcasts. Thank you all for listening. And we're sending you big virtual hugs. Bye, all. Bye. Bye, everyone. You have been listening to another brand new episode of The Drip, the 45th episode of The Drip, in fact, recorded in St. Paul, Minneapolis, and the Hyde Park neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. Our show is written, produced, and directed by Anita Chikatur, Crystal Moten, and me, Todd Lawrence. We are the All Spoilers Collective. Our next episode will drop in a couple weeks, and it's on Changes, the classic novel by the late Ghanaian writer, politician, academic, and theorist, Ama'ada Aidu. Until then, take care of yourselves and each other. <laughs>